everyone, I'm back, and I want to welcome you again to Beyond Texas. I'm W.F. Strong, your host and narrator. Every once in a while, I like to share a story that I found particularly moving or frightening or inspiring when I first encountered it. Today, we're going to go way down to South America, to Argentina, to enjoy a short story by Jorge Luis Borges titled The Gospel According to Mark. It is a story that astounded me, really, when I first read it, and it astounds me still. Rod Serling might have used it for his Twilight Zone series. First, just a quick overview of Borges himself. His full name, Jorge Francisco Isidoro Luis Borges. He was an Argentine short story writer, essayist, poet, translator, and a key figure in Spanish language literature. His work embraces the character of unreality in all of literature. His stories were described by one critic as a surrealistic maze, interconnected by common themes including dreams, labyrinths, libraries, mirrors, fictional writers, philosophy, and religion. This story, only about 12 minutes long, has most of these themes. I think you'll at least find it interesting. The Gospel According to Mark These events took place at La Colorada Ranch in the southern part of the township of Junin during the last days of March 1928. The protagonist was a medical student named Baltasar Espinosa. We may describe him for now as one of the common run of young men from Buenos Aires, with nothing more noteworthy about him than an almost unlimited kindness and a capacity for public speaking that had earned him several prizes at the English school in Ramos Mejia. He did not like arguing and preferred having his listener rather than himself in the right. Although he was fascinated by the probabilities of chance in any game he played, he was a bad player because it gave him no pleasure to win. His wide intelligence was undirected. At the age of 33, he still lacked credit for graduation by one course, the course to which he was most drawn. His father was a free thinker, like all the gentlemen of his day, had introduced him to the lessons of Herbert Spencer. But his mother, before leaving on a trip to Montevideo, once asked him to say the Lord's Prayer and make the sign of the cross every night. Through the years, he had never gone back on that promise. Espinoza was not lacking in spirit. One day, with more indifference than anger, he had exchanged two or three punches with a group of fellow students who were trying to force him to take part in a university demonstration. Owing to an acquiescent nature, he was full of opinions or habits of mind that were questionable. Argentina mattered less to him than a fear that in other parts of the world people might think of us as Indians. He worshipped France but despised the French. He thought little of Americans but approved the fact that there were tall buildings like theirs in Buenos Aires. He believed the gauchos of the plains to be better riders than those of Hill or Mountain Country. When his cousin Daniel invited him to spend the summer months out at La Colorada, he said yes at once, not because he was really fond of the country, but more out of his natural complacency and also because it was easier to say yes 
than to dream up reasons for saying no. The ranch's main house was big and slightly run down. The quarters of the foreman, whose name was Gutre, was also close by. The Gutres were three, the father, an unusually uncouth son, and a daughter of uncertain paternity. They were tall, strong, and bony, and had hair that was on the reddish side and faces that showed traces of Indian blood. They were barely articulate. The foreman's wife had died years before. There in the country, Espinosa began learning things he had never known or even suspected. For example, that you do not gallop a horse when approaching settlements, and that you never go out riding except for special purposes. In time, he was to come to tell the birds apart by their calls. After a few days, Daniel had to leave for Buenos Aires to close a deal on some cattle. At most, this bit of business might take him a week. Espinosa was already somewhat weary of hearing about his cousin's incessant luck with women and his tireless interest in the minute details of men's fashion, preferred staying on the ranch with his textbooks. But the heat was unbearable, and even the night brought no relief. One morning at daybreak, thunder woke him. Outside, the wind was rocking the Australian pines. Listening to the first heavy drops of rain, Espinosa thanked God. All at once, cold air rolled in. That afternoon, the Salado overflowed its banks. The next day, looking out over the flooded fields from the gallery of the main house, Baltasar Espinosa thought that the stock metaphor comparing the Pampa to the sea was not altogether false, at least not that morning, though W.H. Hudson had remarked that the sea seems wider because we view it from a ship's deck and not from a horse or from eye level. The rain did not let up. The Gutres, helped or hindered by Espinosa, the town dweller, rescued a good part of the livestock, but many animals were drowned. There were four roads leading to La Corolada. All of them were underwater. On the third day, when a leak threatened the foreman's house, Espinosa gave the Gutres a room near the tool shed at the back of the main house. This drew them all closer. They ate together in the big dining room. Conversation turned out to be difficult. The Gutres, who knew so much about the country things, were hard put to explain them. One night, Espinosa asked them if people still remembered the Indian raids from back when the Frontier Command was located there in Hunin. They told him yes, but they would have given the same answer to a question about the beheading of Charles I. Espinosa recalled his father saying that almost every case of longevity that was cited in the country was really a case of bad memory or of a dim notion of dates. Gauchos are apt to be ignorant of the year of their birth or of the name of the man who begot them. In the whole house there was apparently no other reading matter than a set of the farm journal, a handbook of veterinary medicine, a deluxe edition of Uruguayan epic Tabaré, a history of shorthorn cattle in Argentina, a number of erotic or detective stories, and a recent novel called Don Segundo Sombra. Espinosa, trying in some way to bridge the inevitable after-dinner gap, read a couple of chapters of this novel to the Gutres, none of whom could read or write. Unfortunately, the foreman had been a cattle drover, 
and the doings of the hero, another cattle drover, failed to whet his interest. There was a guitar in the kitchen. The ranch hands, before the time of the events I am describing, used to sit around in a circle. Someone would tune the instrument without ever getting around to playing it. This was known as a guitar fest. Espinosa had grown a beard, began dallying in front of the mirror to study his new face, and he smiled to think how back in Buenos Aires he would bore his friends by telling them the story of the Salado Flood. Strangely enough, he missed places he had never frequented and never would. A corner of Cabrera Street, on which there was a mailbox, one of the cement lions of a gateway on Juji Street, a few blocks from the Plaza del Once, an old bar room with a tiled floor whose exact whereabouts he was unsure of. As for his brother and his father, they would have already learned from Daniel that he was isolated. Etymologically, the word was perfect, by the floodwaters. Exploring the house still hemmed in by the watery waste, Espinosa came across an English Bible. Among the blank pages at the inn, the Guthries, which was their original name, had left a handwritten record of their lineage. They were natives of Inverness, had reached the New World, no doubt as common laborers, in the early part of the 19th century, and had intermarried with Indians. The chronicle broke off sometime during the 1870s, and they no longer knew how to write. After a few generations, they had forgotten English. Their Spanish, at the time Espinosa knew them, gave them trouble. They lacked any religious faith, but there survived in their blood, like faint tracks, the rigid fanaticism of the Calvinist and the superstitions of the Pampa Indian. Espinosa later told them of his find, but they barely took notice. Leafing through the volume, his fingers opened it at the beginning of the Gospel according to St. Mark. As an exercise in translation, and maybe to find whether the Guthries understood any of it, Espinosa decided to begin reading to them that text after their evening meal. It surprised him that they listened attentively, absorbed. Maybe the gold letters on the cover lent the book authority. It's still there in their blood, Espinosa thought. It also occurred to him that the generations of men throughout recorded time have always told and retold two stories, that of a lost ship which searches the Mediterranean seas for a dearly loved island, and that of a god who is crucified on Golgotha. Remembering his lessons in elocution from his school days in Ramos Mejia, Espinosa got to his feet when he came to the parables. The Guthries took to bolting their barbecued meat and their sardines so as not to delay the gospel. A pet lamb that the girl adorned with a small blue ribbon had injured itself on a strand of barbed wire to stop the bleeding the three had wanted to apply a cobweb to the wound, but Espinosa treated the animal with some pills. The gratitude that this treatment awakened in them took him aback. Not trusting the Guthries at first, he'd hidden away in one of his books the 240 pesos he had brought with him. Now, the owner of the place away, Espinosa took over and gave timid orders which were immediately obeyed. The Guthries, as if lost without him, liked following him from room to room and along the gallery that ran around the house. While he read to them, he noticed that they were secretly stealing the crumbs he had dropped on the table. One evening, he caught them unawares talking about him respectfully, in very few words. 
Having finished the gospel according to St. Mark, he wanted to read another of the three gospels that remained, but the father asked him to repeat the one he had just read so that they could understand it better. Espinosa felt that they were like children, to whom repetition is more pleasing than variations or novelty. That night, this is not to be wondered at, he dreamed of the flood. The hammer blows of the building of the ark woke him up, and he thought that perhaps they were thunder. In fact, the rain which had led up started again. The cold was bitter. The Guthrie's had told him that the storm had damaged the roof of the tool shed and that they would show it to him when the beams were fixed. No longer a stranger now, he was treated by them with special attention almost to the point of spoiling him. None of them liked coffee, but for him there was always a small cup into which they heaped sugar. The new storm had broken out on a Tuesday, Thursday night. Espinosa was awakened by a soft knock at his door, which, just in case, he always kept locked. He got out of bed and opened it, and there was the girl. In the dark, he could barely make her out, but by her footsteps he could tell that she was barefoot, and moments later, in bed, that she must have come all the way from the other end of the house naked. She did not embrace him or speak a single word. She lay beside him, trembling. It was the first time she had known a man. When she left, she did not kiss him. Espinosa realized that he didn't even know her name. For some reason that he did not want to pry into, he made up his mind that, upon returning to Buenos Aires, he would tell no one about what had taken place. The next day began like the previous ones, except that the father spoke to Espinosa and asked him if Christ had let himself be killed so to save all other men on earth. Espinosa was a free thinker, but who felt committed to what he had read to the Guthries and answered yes, to save everyone from hell. Gutre then asked, what's hell? A place under the ground where souls burn and burn. And the Roman soldiers who hammered in the nails, were they saved too, he asked? Yes, said Espinosa, whose theology was rather dim. All along he was afraid that the foreman might ask him about what had gone on the night before with his daughter. After lunch they asked him to read the last chapters over again. Espinosa slept a long nap that afternoon, it was a light sleep, disturbed by persistent hammering and vague premonitions. Towards evening, he got up and went out onto the gallery. He said, as if thinking aloud, the waters have dropped. It won't be long now. It won't be long now, Gutre repeated like an echo. The three had been following him, bowing their knees to the stone pavement. They asked his blessing. Then they mocked at him, spat on him, and shoved him toward the back part of the house. The girl wept. Espinosa understood what awaited him on the other side of the door. When they opened it, he saw a patch of sky. A bird sang out, a goldfinch, he thought. The shed was without a roof. They had pulled down the beams to make the cross. That's it for now. If you'd like to write to me anytime... You can write to me at wfstrongpodcast at gmail.com.